walk through 1 Corinthians. We spent multiple, multiple messages on 1 Corinthians. And you remember, Paul was around, I don't know, it was 55-ish AD when Paul was addressing the church at Corinth. There was all these problems, troubles. There were some good things, some bad things. He clarified some things. They had questions. Paul cleared it all up. And now what we're going to do is we are going to travel probably approximately another 30 years. Remember, Corinth is in Greece. Corinth is in Greece. So what we're going to do is that if this is the globe, we are going to travel over to modern-day Turkey approximately 30 years later for the book of 1 John. 1 John. So if you'll turn with me to 1 John, we are going to go through this amazing book. But first, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you that we get to gather on this beautiful day, and there's a beautiful building. The air conditioning is working perfectly. We are so spoiled when we compare ourselves to other people. You have just, because you've wanted to, you've given us so many good things here, and we thank you for them. And we, and we recognize they come from you. We recognize they come from you. And so we want to say thank you. But Father, I pray now the reason that we've come together would be to know you more and to be changed by you. And so, Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would do that. You would change us. Lord, that we'd leave here different. That husbands would leave here different. Wives would leave here different. Kids would leave here different. They would all leave here looking more like Jesus Christ. Father, bless us. It's only by your power that this could happen. So we put all of our trust, all of our faith in you to do this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie Ford versus Ferrari, the whole movie is about Ford trying to develop this supercar to beat Ferrari in the 24-hour of Le Mans. And so there's this buildup, and Ford is going through car after car, and they're just trying to increase the horsepower. Finally, they get to the 24-hour of Le Mans, and Carroll Shelby is kind of like their, he's their leader. He's their leader. And so there's this huge competition against Ford versus Ferrari. This actually happened. It's a true story in the 60s. And so the movie is kind of documenting this race. And so there is a scene in the movie, and it's late at night. The race has been going on for quite a while. And Carol Shelby goes over. They are pitted right next, or their, their pit is right next to Ferrari's. And Carol Shelby grabs a lug nut, takes the lug nut, walks over kind of by Ferrari, and tosses it over to where their area that they would pit, they would bring in the Ferrari, they would change the tires, they would give it fuel. He tosses a lug nut down right on their side. And then he just slowly walks back over to his side. Well, what happened was one of the team members, Ferrari, was just talking, talking. He turns around and he looks down and there is a lug nut on the ground. 
And he starts to freak out. And the whole team starts to freak out because what that means or could mean is that this car that's going 200 plus miles an hour flying down these country roads could be missing a lug nut. And so they start doubting, oh my goodness, does this mean the tire's going to fly off? Our driver could die? And it casts doubt into that team. That is what is happening in 1 John. Some people have crept in to this body of believers and casting doubt on who Jesus is. They're casting doubt. Now here's the thing. Let's first set the stage for John. We don't exactly know 100% for sure that the apostle John wrote the book. But when you start to compare all the facts and you look at it close, you look at church history, you look at theologians as they looked at it, and consensus is that actually John the apostle wrote 1 John. We also don't know exactly the church or the group of churches that it was written to. But we think when we compare scripture, we think that it was this group in Turkey. It was maybe a small couple house churches that John oversaw. And we think that it was written around 80, 85, 90 A.D., We're not exactly sure because John is just, something about him, he doesn't come in large and in charge and say, I, John, wrote this letter and this was the time. He is very kind of elusive. So we kind of have to compare and, and, okay, what did he say there? Wait, what was going on here? Wait a minute. We compare the book of Revelation. We see the churches that are talked about and that. And we come all together. And I think we could say with some confidence that, John the Apostle wrote the letter. He, one author thinks that he was in Ephesus when he penned the letter. And it was to this group of churches in modern day Turkey around 85 AD. Now, don't get hung up on that. Because we know that the letter is written to Christians. And we also are Christians. And so even though a crazy amount of time has come From when this was penned to now, this has got so much stuff in here for us. So, we want to look at this. And so here's the idea. One of the thoughts is that what was going on is that there were some false teachers that were teaching some heresies. And so one group, one thought is thinking that there are some false teachers from without that infiltrated the church and started to spread some lies, some false teaching. But another theologian, when he looks at it, he compares and he says, you know what, these these churches, these members wouldn't have been so easily duped for someone from outside. We think what happened was in this body of believers that there was some prominent teachers within the congregation They started to get led astray from false teachers without. They were already in the congregation. They started to sow some false doctrine. It gained some traction. And now we've got heresy in the church. And so what John is doing is that he's writing to this group of believers that he oversees. And he is going to address some of the issues of, of the, that are plaguing this church. That are plaguing this church. 
Let me read to you this. This is a quote. Quote, it is clear from the internal evidence of 1 John that a developing schism within the Christian community led to its writing. The difficulty had already reached a point where some members, including teachers, had separated themselves from the others and were in the process of setting up their own community. Although the breach was complete, the dissidents continued to keep in touch with the rest of the membership, and they were actively trying to entice them to join the new group. Okay? So, imagine that there is, you know, someone on here, and they start to say, you know, I've got this special knowledge, okay, called Gnosticism. Now, we don't exactly know if that was what they were trying to go against, but Gnosticism, the Greek word for that is gnosis, which means knowledge. And they had this secret knowledge. And they were telling everyone, hey, this is actually the truth. Another author says this, the internal evidence strongly suggests that the heresy arose within the church and was propagated by respected and able teachers in the community who had defected from the true faith and fellowship. So, someone starts to propagate lies. Now, here are some of the lies that were floated around that time. Now, we don't exactly know the person or the, the, the complete thinking of the false doctrine. We don't know. A lot of people say, oh man, it was Gnosticism, I can guarantee it. Well, when you start to dig into it a little bit more, there are some other heresies that could have been what he was going against. Let me read this to you. One author says, quote, The exact character of these false teachers has been much discussed. Many have thought they were Gnostics who held to a strict dualism in which spiritual and material things were sharp, sharply distinguished. So what they would say is that the flesh is bad, the spirit is good. They would distinguish a difference. Others have been seen the letter as directed against docetism, the belief that Jesus' humanity was not real and that he only appeared to have a physical body. So imagine someone came in here and they started saying, hey, here's the thing is that, you know, Jesus, it just, it just appeared that he actually had a real body. He didn't actually have a real body. And some people, you know, who might like this certain person, it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. I've never heard that. It says, quote, often, too, the letter is thought to refute the heresy of Serenitheus. According to church tradition, Serenitheus lived in Roman Asia and was strongly opposed by the apostle John. Serenitheus taught that Jesus was only a man and that the divine Christ descended on Jesus at his baptism and left him before crucifixion. So imagine that. You have someone within the church saying, hey, listen. The spirit of divine Christ descended on Jesus at his baptism and left him before his crucifixion. That is a major, major problem. And here's what you'll know. Anytime someone wants to cast doubt in your spiritual life, what they will do, if they are skilled, if they are really used by the enemy, is they will always come at your foundation. And your foundation 
is Jesus Christ. They'll start to say things like, you know, did Christ really exist? Or was he just a person and uh, they collected a bunch of thoughts about him and now that is what Christianity is? One author says this, quote, Gnostics, from the Greek word gnosis, was an uh, amalgam of various pagan Jewish and quasi-Christian systems of thought, influenced by Greek philosophy, especially that of Plato. Gnosticism taught that matter was inherently evil and spirit was good. The philosophical dualism led the false teachers whom John confronted to accept some form of Christ's deity, but to deny his humanity. He could not, according to them, have taken a physical body since matter was evil. The denial of the incarnation is Gnosticism took two basic forms. Some known as docetists, from the Greek verb dokio, which means to seem or to appear, taught that Jesus' body was not a real physical body, but only appeared to be so. So, there's a church, there's a group of churches, influential people in the church start to teach some false doctrine. And so now we're setting the stage for right when we start to read 1 John. So sometimes when you jump into a book, you know, you just think, okay, what am I going to read today? I'm going to read, oh, I guess I'm on 1 John. And then you jump into it, so you just think, okay, that's interesting. I wonder what's the whole background. Well, that's the background. So whenever you do that, if you look at 1 John... John the Apostle is going against some false teachings, some false prophets that are infiltrating the church and leading people astray. That's the background. But here's the thing. Matthew 24, 24 says this. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus said there will be False prophets, false teachers, they are going to come. They're going to throw a little doubt. They're going to be like Carol Shelby taking that lug nut, tossing it over there. And Ferrari's freaking out, casting doubt on are they doing the right thing. Sometimes that might happen to you. If you think, oh, you know, I got some time to kill. I'm going to watch the History Channel. You're on there and you say, what comes up? Oh, it's all about the life of Christ. And you think, oh, okay, you know, this will be interesting. And you watch it and then you start to see the seeds of doubt are sown into that whole documentary about was Christ real? Did he actually really raise from the dead? And you're like getting a little bit jammed up inside. Like, wait, wait a minute. And then a little seed of doubt creeps in like, Man, have I been duped? Have I been tricked? See, the enemy wants you to doubt Christ. He wants you to doubt Christ. Because the forgiveness of sins lies with Christ. And it lies with an accurate understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is fully God. In the beginning was the Word. That is Jesus Christ. Fully God. Always was. Always will be. 
He never had a beginning and he will never have an end. Can I get an amen? That's Jesus. But the Bible says this, is that Jesus, fully God, became man, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He took on a body, a real body. And so when we read 1 John, starting in chapter 1, you're going to see the Apostle John, he's trying to say this. Listen, Jesus was real in every sense of the word. Let's dive into it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So here's what, what John is saying. Jesus is real in every sense. We heard him. We've seen him. We've looked upon him. We've touched him. Jesus is fully God and fully man, not some ghost or something that we've imagined. If someone wants to cast doubt in your faith, what they're going to do is they're going to attack Christ. Did Christ really die? Did Christ really exist? Did he really actually raise from the dead? Because you know that stuff's crazy. You know, if you're going to be a rational human being, you can't believe that stuff. And what John is saying this, listen, it is a miracle. And I am telling you, I am a personal eyewitness. I have seen him. I heard him. I touched him. He is real. He's not some fake thing where we just imagined him. It's a ghost. It's just a collection of some good sayings. No, John is saying this. He is real. Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that you may have joy. That our joy may be complete. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So put yourself in that church. You're there. It's 85 AD. You're working hard. You have this fellowship and it's going great. And you love these people. And this person's getting baptized. This, these people are getting married, and you just love it. Everything is going amazing, and then comes some false teaching, and they start to attack your whole foundation on that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And you start thinking, oh, man, and you want to talk about you, someone's joy could be gone just like that if they start to lose their faith in who Christ is. Their whole world will get shaken. If you could take Christ away from someone, their whole world will be shaken. And what John is saying is, listen, we are writing this that our joy may be complete. And so here's the thing. Here's the application. Saying, if your foundation in Jesus Christ has been shaken, 
if doubt has creeped in to your mind, if you've watched a movie or a documentary or someone has said something and, you know, there's something in the back of your mind and you realize, you know what, man, my faith has been shaken. I would say this, this letter is for you. And I'm going to preach it so that your joy may be complete. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Look at that. The message we have heard from him, we proclaim to you. John is saying this, I have first-hand knowledge of what Christ said, and I'm telling you, I got it directly from him, and I'm giving it to you. Now, the beautiful thing is this, is that I... John got this directly from God, and now I am giving it directly to you. That's why we hold God's word above any other here at Russellville Baptist Church. Because this is all that matters. This is final authority. This is God's word. And I'm proclaiming it to you. This is the only power. This is where we learn that the gospel is the one that forgives sins. Like, this is what we hold true. This is what we love. This is what we highlight is God's word. This is what changes people's lives. See, here's the thing. What's happening in our world is that we want to change people's lives. Preachers want to change people's lives. Churches want to change people's lives. And so what they do is they say this. We have to find a way to get non-believers to come into the church. So let's tone down... Words about sin and judgment and wickedness. Let's get rid of those. Let's get rid of hell. Let's get rid of all that stuff. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to proclaim a different Christ. A Christ that wants to give you a great life now. You come to Christ, everything will be good. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. And then we open the churches and guess what happens? They get filled. Man, they get filled. You know why? Because people love themselves. People are very narcissistic. They want to be told how good they are. So you start telling them, man, you are a good person. You come on in. Man, you're good just, just the way you are. Man, you do you. And then you got another church that says, hey, hold on. You know what? Here's the thing. We're going to highlight Christ. We're not going to tone down the message so that more people will come. What we're going to do is we're going to proclaim freedom to the captives. We're going to say this. Jesus Christ loves you so much, but here's the problem. Between you and him, there's a huge problem, which is called sin. There's sin in your life. Someone says, well, wait a minute. Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? Well, here's the beautiful thing is that Jesus Christ told you that you're a sinner. He's the judge, and he's warning you that if you die in your sins, you'll have to pay for them for the rest of your life. Isn't that love? Because love is this, love is telling the truth. And so Jesus says this, come to me and I'll forgive it. There's churches doing that also all across the world. They're proclaiming God's word. They're not going to tone it down. They're not going to mess with Christ. They're going to proclaim the word just like they heard it from Scripture. Have you ever played that game Telephone? Kids, raise your hand. You know what? Have you ever played Telephone? Max, have you ever played Telephone? So here's the game of Telephone. You know, me and Grayson and a bunch of other people would line up. And I would say this. 
So I'm going to start off and I'm going to say something into Grayson's ear and then we're going to let it travel through 30 people. And then at the end, the last person is going to say what I said. So I'm going to say something like, and then Grayson's going to say it to the next person and the next person, the next person, the next person. And the idea is that we want to keep the message pure all the way through so that at the very end, we say the same thing that I said. But everybody knows in the game of telephone, there's always a jokester in the midst. Tony, is that true? It is true. There's always a jokester. About halfway through, I'll say something like, you know, Russellville, Missouri is awesome. And then halfway through, someone will deliberately change the message. And it usually has to do with a fart or something. And you think, well, how how did that, what are you talking about? You messed up the message. I proclaimed a message and then someone halfway between messed up the message. Well, here's what John is saying this. Listen, I am not messing up the message. I am proclaiming firsthand exactly what Christ said, who he is, and what he said. And most importantly, what he did. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's how to spot a liar. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We're a liar. If someone says this, you know what, I have fellowship with Christ. I have fellowship with Christ. And you look at their life and you ask them about it and you see that they're going completely against Christ. Their life is full of sin. They're a liar. They don't know Christ. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. We walk in the light. We look at this. We let the light of God's word shine on us. And then show us where we need more help. And guess what? We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't have to be good enough. We we do this. You know what, Jesus? You've exposed to me that I'm weak in this area and that this sin kind of grips me. Maybe I'm a gossip or I do alcohol or pornography. The sin that you've exposed, we don't just say, man, I'm going to do better. No, what we do is we come to the Lord, we get on our knees and say, Lord, this. Please help me overcome the darkness in my life only by the power of Jesus. So here's the hope, is that no matter what sin, what secret sin is in your life, if you have any, if you come to Christ, he is faithful and just, one, to forgive you of that sin, and two, to help you to overcome it. That's the gospel. We don't minimize sin and we don't get rid of sin. No, no, no. We confess sin and we ask God to forgive us from sin and get us out of the bondage of sin. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is exactly what's happened in our world today. The world says this, the things that I do that are against scripture are not sin. I can do whatever I want. So here's my, here's my thing. Next time you're talking to a Christian who seems like a little off, you see that you start talking to them. They start saying some things. You think, man, that's, 
that's a little sketchy because what you're saying doesn't really line up with Scripture. Ask them this. What sins did Jesus die for? Not, not their particular sins, but just ask him, what sins did Jesus die for? And find out from them what sins they feel are okay to call sin. They'll tell you a lot about a person. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Saints, here's the thing. This is beautiful. And world, listen, this is beautiful. If we confess our sins, there's no forgiveness of sins without repentance, which means to turn away from. And so here's a practical thing about repentance. When we were in our sin, we are going one direction. We're continuing to sin. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we gossip. And the Bible says this, if we repent, we confess our sin to the Lord, and we change and we follow Christ, all of that sin, past, present, and future, Jesus says that I'll forgive. He forgives. And sadly, church, people want to mess with that message. They want to mess with the message that forgives people and makes them pure and white, holy before the Lord. White as snow, as the blood stain is just this filth of sin is all over us. Jesus says this, I could make you white as snow. Now as we end, I'll say this. Much of what John is going against in this letter, the church is going through right now. Because guess what? Our adversary knows where to attack. He knows where to attack, and he's going to attack Christ. He's going to attack Jesus, the Savior, the fully God, fully man, Savior of the world. That's where he's going to attack. And so if you've got kids, understand this. You want to teach them that Jesus is fully God, fully man. He came in the flesh. He was born among us. He was sinless. And he died a substitutionary atonement death for us. Parents, you are the main spiritual leaders of your kids. I served as a, as a, as a uh, kids pastor for four and a half years at a large church in California. And I would still say this. I, am, I was not the main spiritual leader of all the kids. I would always tell the parent, listen, you are the main spiritual leader. Now, what my job was, the kids pastor, was to come alongside the parents, love on them, help them, give them resources, teach their kids when they came. But I only had a tiny, tiny, tiny bit with each of their children. My team, we only had a tiny bit. It's the parents we have all the time. The parents who are driving the kids to baseball practice, to home, to dance, to back to home, to school, who are sitting together eating food. Parents, it's on you. It's on you. So you got to teach these things to your kids because they are growing up in a world that is attacking Christ. The beautiful thing about a life group is that if you have questions firing off in your mind, you're saying, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? That's what life group does. Life groups 
get into God's word and they start to dissect things and then you can raise your hand and you can ask questions. Preferably really hard ones for Stephen. We need to know Christ. We need to proclaim his word. Just as I have done to you, parents, proclaim these things to your children. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We proclaim that you are in charge. Lord, this is your world. This is not Biden's world. 